So I think there's been this progressive evolution for me to where, are we gonna do some high force training? Absolutely. But also recognizing that if I wanna get somebody ready for competitive sport, and the speeds and the forces involved in competitive sport, there has to be this element of speed in the training. Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are going to do the Q&A episode for August of 2022. So first and foremost, hope you're having an amazing day, absolutely crushing this week. Uh, Be honest, pretty freaking pumped for this episode. You know, I get a lot of questions about training, coaching, business, personal development, and I'd never really thought to put it into a regular podcast. So I got this really, really nice uh, message on Facebook a while back, and this guy was like, hey man, I'll be honest, like I love your podcast, but I think I love your solo shows the most. So it was good to hear, uh, definitely made me feel good, but uh, this particular guy just said, hey, I love when you do solo stuff. I know you can't do it all the time, but we love learning from you. We love the guests, but we love learning from you as well. So if this is something where you guys have consistent questions or there's things that I can continue to answer or fill you in on or get you up to speed on, then I will do these going forward. So we've got six, seven really good questions that I'm going to answer here in a little bit. Before we go there, want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, what is new in my neck of the woods. And as I kind of alluded to, the last couple weeks have been a little bit slower Coaching-wise, I had a handful of guys playing in Summer League, and then, look, when you're when you're done with Summer League, when you're done with Vegas, it's almost like this very condensed uh, season, essentially. I mean, it may only be four or five weeks, depending on the team you play for and how many games, how many minutes you're playing, but it can be a lot, and just mentally, it can be a lot. So uh, even though Summer League wrapped up this last weekend, a handful of the guys are still out of town taking the little vacation with the family, just getting away from the routine of training because, you know, look, when they come back, it's going to be full steam ahead for the next two to three months as far as training goes, and then their actual season starts. So even though the actual coaching was light, it gave me some time to work on other things. Um, Lots of things I'm working on for iFast, working on behind the scenes for RTS. Uh, Believe it or not, my kids start school in like two weeks. Kendall's going to start soccer here soon. So just trying to get mentally and uh, physically ready for that when that gets going again. So all kinds of stuff going on last week, even though it wasn't necessarily just coaching related. Uh, This past weekend had an absolute blast. Uh, I know I've talked about my good friend Wes in the past. He was my best friend growing up best man in his wedding and vice versa and he has a lake house up in northern indiana so really really fun weekend because i'd taken kendall before but i had never taken Cade. so the three of us went up there i gave mom a weekend kind of to herself to chill out and relax which hopefully she appreciated but man it was so much fun we go up there and there's so many things to do right the kids can just play and have fun you know go out on the boat just playing and swimming in the water, going fishing. I mean, just doing kid stuff outdoors, man. It was awesome. So I had an absolute blast. You almost feel like after a two-day weekend like that, though, that you need another day off just because you are absolutely wiped. When we got back, 
uh, about 6, 6.30 p.m. on Sunday, we were all just trashed, but <laughs> definitely a sign that we had a great weekend. So that was awesome. And then early this week, I did a full consulting day. Um, and it's funny because I had the consulting day set up with Pat Rigsby, who, as you guys know, has basically been my business strategist advisor since 2008. Uh, and I very readily admit IFAST, RTS wouldn't be where they're at today without Pat Rigsby and his guidance over the years. So I like to actually drive down there. It's only about a two-hour drive or should only be a two-hour drive. So on the way, my good friend Joey Burton and I catch up and we actually spend about 90 minutes helping each other with various projects. So he's trying to up his social media game and trying to have a better understanding of kind of how I'm approaching that. And then on the flip side... I'm consistently trying to learn, hey man, you built an amazing basketball business here in five or six years. How did you do that? So man, at the end of that day, I was wiped as well because between driving that two hours and Joey and I talked for about an hour and a half of it, go down, meet with Pat for like four hours and we're breaking down what I want to do in RTS, what I want to do at IFAST, um, just general like life goals, where I can see myself moving and evolving to over the next 15, 20 years. So, man, just a lot of good stuff going on. Very, very excited about the future. And so, yeah, that's kind of what's new uh, in my space. And like I said up front, I hope you're doing great. Hope you're having an amazing week. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this, what I hope to be, is a really, really awesome Q&A episode. It seems like every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who is frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if that sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and who know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. And the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will only open twice per year for a limited time only. To get on the insider's list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for emails in the coming weeks. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. All right, my friend, let's dive into this Q&A episode. Now, if this is something you want to participate in or you have questions about, 
Make sure you're watching the Instagram stories. This, I, I put this in there. I put it in my complete coach certification group. Now, granted, you have to be a member there. You have to purchase the cert. But I try and put this out there in numerous places. So make sure you're following me on social so that you can chime in if you have questions going forward. So like I said, I got about six or seven questions here, and it's pretty wide-ranging which I actually enjoy, kind of fits in with my ADD personality, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy it as well. So without any further ado, let's just dive in. So this first question comes from Tyler. I know this came from the gram, and Tyler wants to know, how do you onboard new staff members? And fantastic question, something that I do get asked quite a bit. And the fun thing about this is, it'll actually tie in seamlessly to my next question where we're gonna talk about coach development and coaching and program design and that sort of thing. But philosophically, for me, I like to hire from within what I would call our circle. And so I tend to think of our circle as these like concentric rings, right? So if you throw a stone in the water, you know, you got the smallest circle close to where the rock went in and then they get progressively bigger. I wanna hire as close to where that stone went in as possible. So the first place I'm looking when I'm hiring somebody is our interns, right? Because that person has spent a ton of time working for us already. And now we'll get into how we onboard here in a minute, but I wanna give you some ideas into the philosophy of our hiring process first. So we start with interns. Now, if we don't have an intern that I think is gonna be a good fit, the next level is somebody that is very, very close to our personal circle. So I'll give you an example here. Back in the day, we needed an afternoon coach. And at the time, Zach Moore was leaving. He was gonna go work for Precision Nutrition. And I knew I wanted somebody that was a little bit more athletically focused. Right? I knew I wanted IFAS to be known for athletic development, for making better athletes. And so when I put this out there, I put it out to coaches that I trusted, uh, that I had a high degree of respect for. And luckily, Lee Taft comes back to me and says, hey, Ty Terrell would be an amazing fit for you. He's, I think he had bought uh, Lee's gym in Newcastle at the time and was running that. And, and Ty had already brought in numerous athletes to be evaluated by Bill and worked with Bill. So when he, you know, decided to come into our world, I was like, this is a perfect fit. And it was a perfect fit. I think Ty worked for us for five or six years, you know, arguably one of the best coaches that we've ever had at IFAST, a voracious learner. And, you know, not to say I'm taking credit for this, but to show that, you know, Ty is everything we thought he would be. You know, he left us, he went and worked for the Atlanta Hawks. And Ty is now, I believe, the high performance director for the Washington Wizards. So pretty freaking cool to see that, okay? Now, as we go outward from these concentric circles, we've got, you know, randoms, right? The further out you get, you get randoms. You get somebody that says, oh, I've got somebody. And there's only one time that I did that. And it was an awful hire. You know, this guy was like, oh, you know, this guy... I think he'd be okay, you know, he's kind of down on his luck, so there was like this kind of sob story attached to it, but I needed somebody in the position, so I hired the guy, and within about three months, I knew it was not the right fit for a lot of reasons. And luckily, the guy found his way out the door uh, within about nine or 12 months. We knew it wasn't gonna work long-term, and so, you know, 
philosophically, that's why I do this, right? I want to hire people that I know, like, and trust first and foremost. Now, let's come back to this idea of onboarding. I don't have to onboard a ton because in most cases, I've already done this during the intern process. So how we do this with our interns, I think, is probably more illustrative of how we onboard versus how we would onboard like a a new quote unquote staff member because we just don't hire like that. So essentially what we do is if somebody's going to intern at IFAST, it's a 12 to 16 week period. If you're hiring somebody and you want to do something like this, I would just call it a probationary period. A lot of times we would say, even if we hire you, right, we have, you know, we've had you as an intern, we like you, trust you, respect you, all that. We still might do a 90-day probationary period where either one of us can walk away, no questions asked. But we have these interns for 12 to 16 weeks. And then what we do is we like titrate them into what IFAST is, right? They progressively get more and more responsibility. So that first two weeks, whether they're a 21-year-old kid fresh out of college or a 40-year-old adult that's been training and coaching people for 10 years, the first two weeks you don't coach. You don't. I don't care what you know or what you think you know. The first two weeks is just shadowing. You're there to hang out. You're there to be a fly on the wall. You're there to get to know the clients, the athletes that come into our gym. And you're learning about, you know, what are they interested in? Why do they come into the gym? Do they have kids? What's their career? What are their hobbies? You know, things like that, that can really help you develop a true relationship with these people that transcends or goes beyond fitness. So we do two weeks of shadowing, and then we do two to four weeks of what I would call low-level coaching. So now we're starting to trust you a little bit more. We're going to thrust you into the coaching process. Maybe you're going to follow them when they do their foam rolling or their resets or some of their conditioning. You're going to start to play a bigger role, or maybe you're just facilitating the workout. You're not actually coaching at this point, but hey, They're going to deadlift. You're going to help them get set up on the deadlift. When they go to do a step up, you're going to help them get set up there. From there, we're going to, again, progressively give you more responsibility. So now four to six weeks after that, now you're going to be in more what we would describe as higher level coaching. You're not going to coach in a semi-private session, right? We're not asking you to coach all four people that are on the floor, but maybe you're going to take Chris or you're going to take Sarah, you're going to take them through their workout in a one-on-one environment. Obviously, our head coach is still supervising and monitoring what's going on, but you're going to get more responsibility. And then at the end, you would be described, uh, or we would give you the opportunity to be a full coach. So the last week of the internship, what we would generally do is we turn the reins over to you. I would step back and say, all right, here are your four clients for this hour manage this session. And that's a lot of work because if you're used to being in a one-on-one environment, you're used to coaching and cueing every rep, it's a lot because now you're taking a step back and you're forced to kind of triage a little bit. What do I see is going well? What is not going well? You have to figure out the best time and places to step in. You're trying to manage just the flow of clients. But that's generally how we we onboard our staff, or in this case, our interns. Now, if you're bringing on a new staff member or a new coach, you're probably going to speed this pace up just a little bit. You may not want to take 16 weeks to get them up to speed, but I think you know this kind of process works well, where 
you titrate them into the coaching process, you give them a week or two at each stop to just make sure, okay, how is this person fitting in culturally? How are they getting on with the clients and athletes that are coming in? Are they coaching and cueing in a way that's congruent with what the way I want things done? Like these are things that you need to be conscious for and conscious of. So I hope that helps, Tyler. Uh, if you have follow-up questions on that one, definitely let me know because onboarding is a pretty loaded topic. Okay, question number two. Unfortunately, I don't have whoever's name asked this. But the question is, when do you allow coaches to write their own programs? And this is a great question as well. And again, as we go through these, I'm going to make sure I give you some philosophy in here as well. So when you go through the internship process at IFAST, kind of your final project, if you will, is your program defense. And so essentially what we ask you to do is you are going to stand up in front of, at this point in time, myself, Bill, uh, Dave, and Jesse, and you're going to basically tell us exactly why you wrote a program for this person, right? So you're going to create a, a hypothetical client or athlete. You're going to basically let them know or let us know, hey, this is the client. This is the way they present. Uh, these are their goals. And then here are two subsequent programs. So like a 1.0 program and a 1.1 or like a block A and a block B. And we set it up like this so that we get an idea of not only how would you write that first program, but more importantly, how would you progress somebody from month to month? Because one of the, the issues that we found early on when we would just make them do one month or when we would have them write one program but for two different clients is that, you know, they get in there and they use all their coolest stuff in the first month and you know they've got nothing left to do in month two. And as a young trainer or a young coach, you can probably remember a time and a place when you did that as well. I mean, I know I did that where I used all of my coolest stuff in month one and then it got to month two and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this person anymore. So we have them do this program defense where they have to defend essentially these two subsequent programs and break down exactly why they're choosing set rep schemes, exercise selections, uh, you know, rest, time under tension, all of those big bang variables, even down to the cues that they're using. So we can get into their mind and we start to understand, does this person really get how to write a program? Now, once they've gone through that, like if you can stand in front of me and Bill and Jesse and Dave and, and get through that, like, good for you. You have you have some skills, right? And I've generally got an idea of where you're at as a program designer following that. Now, the next step, if you would say come and work for us after that is, I mean, you got to do a lot of freaking programs to get good at it, right? And I'm a big believer in what I would say guided failure and development. So I am not going to helicopter you the entire time. I'm not going to stand over you every time you write a program and flip through it and ask you questions about it because I don't think people learn very well that way. It puts them in this very high stress, high anxiety environment. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them a lot of freedom and a lot of rope to write programs. And, you know, if they have questions, they know whether it's myself or Bill or Jesse or Dave, they can come to one of us and ask, hey, you know, I'm kind of stuck on this person. What would you do? 
And that's the great thing about working in an environment like IFAST. We can do that. Like I could still go to Dave or Jesse or Bill and say, hey, like I'm kind of stuck on this or I don't quite know what I should do here. Can you help me out? Right. But I think you have to guide them. You have to give them time to fail. You have to give them time to develop. And most importantly, you have to give them time to let them make mistakes. I think this is really, really critical. Now, you don't ever want somebody to get injured. And I don't think any coach that's worked at IFAST would ever be like blatantly, I don't know the best way to describe this. They would never blatantly try and injure somebody, right? Uh, But you got to just kind of keep your eyes on things. Make sure that there's nothing major in there that could potentially hurt somebody. But when they're starting off, just understand like there's going to be more back and forth. If I've got like a brand new 22, 23 year old coach, there's going to be some back and forth going on there because unfortunately they don't know what they don't know. So they may write this program and they think this is amazing. And there's like 10 levels of things that you're seeing just because you've written programs for 10, 15, 20 years that they haven't even thought about yet. So just know and understand there's a lot more mentoring early on. There's a lot more back and forth. You have to guide them. You have to let them develop. Um, But I think one of the coolest things is when you flip this intern program design process. So we talked about it from the intern perspective where the interns have to defend it to the coaches. But this is how I actually gauge my coach development based on the questions they're asking the interns. So think about this for a second, right? We're getting something out of it because the interns are being forced to think through a program and rationalize and and basically present their thoughts to our group. But for me, as a business owner or as somebody that, you know, attempts in some way, shape or form to mentor Jesse and Dave or Eric or Ty or whoever else has been there in the past, I'm learning what my staff knows based on the questions they're asking the interns. So I think that's a really cool part of it as well. So to answer the question very succinctly, look, if you're qualified to work at IFAST and I trust you enough to work on the floor and coaching Q clients and and take care of our people, then I trust you enough to write a program. Now, if you're a young coach, we're going to go back and forth more. I'm going to try and mentor you more. I'm going to try and guide and shape your evolution a little bit more. But towards the end, like, look, I trust you to do this, and I trust you to make good decisions that are going to benefit the clients and athletes that come in. And I also trust you to choose exercises that you are most comfortable coaching and cueing, because there's an individual element of programming that's important as well. Just because me or Jesse or Dave or Bill choose different exercises doesn't mean we don't have the same end goal or the same intention we may just prefer a certain exercise or we may prefer coaching and cueing a certain activity over another. That's totally okay. As the saying goes, there are many, many roads that lead to Rome. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to program design. Okay, so that's number two. Number three, Dan would like to know, do client sessions expire at the end of each month? Okay, so this is a fantastic business question. Now, if you are not a fitness business owner, if you don't own a gym, there's basically two ways you can set this up. If people are signing up for a certain amount of sessions with you, you can either allot them 
to where they expire at the end of every month, or you can set them up to where they expire at the end of every year. Now, to answer the question again succinctly and be direct early on, Dan, yes, we set it up to where our client sessions expire at the end of every month. So if you come twice a week to iFast, you essentially get eight sessions a month or over a 30-day period. If you do not use them, they expire. Now, with that being said, if somebody just happened to miss one or you know there was an honest mistake in there somewhere or they got sick, absolutely I'm going to give them that session back because I'm a big believer when it comes to running a business, you take care of people the way that you would like to be taken care of. Now, you guys know I love the philosophy side of this, so I'm gonna explain why I do this as well, okay? So back in the day, we would do annual packages, okay? So let's say you were on that same two-time-a-week program. Okay, so it's eight sessions a month or 104 sessions per year. If you sign a contract on January 1, or a membership agreement in our case, if you sign that membership agreement for 104 sessions, as of January 1, you have one calendar year to use all 104 sessions. Now, there are some people that are absolutely like clockwork. They will go in on January 1 when they have those 104 sessions and they're going to sign up every Monday and Wednesday at 4 p.m. for the next 52 weeks, and you can bank on them being there. But that's the exception, not the rule. There are absolutely those people that are going to sit on those sessions or they're going to fall off the face of the planet. So we had one extreme case where, you know, this is like seven or eight years ago now. It's like so far in the past. But we had an admin and she basically created this deal with this woman and this woman's husband wrote uh, or actually managed a magazine for a very high-end like local community it was like a big uh, a big neighborhood around here like the house prices were all over six hundred thousand dollars so they're like hey we'll trade our membership it was a three time a week membership for uh, for advertising in this magazine we said, okay, great. And originally, it was supposed to go for two or three months, right? That's a small investment, right? I would gladly train that or trade that, the, the, the cost associated with that, to get exposed to a high-end community like that because there are people that have expendable income that would, could come to our gym. Now, here's what happened. Instead of expiring at the end of this three months, this actually kind of went on in the back burner. This woman went away, had like multiple children, and legitimately 18 months later had two years worth of sessions. I believe it was like 312 sessions banked. Now, keep in mind, they hadn't been running the advertisements, yada, yada, yada. There should have been no reason, but this woman was adamant that she should have access to all 312 sessions, even though she would only come like 12 times a year. Now, keep in mind, great woman, really enjoyed her, but there was this massive disconnect there, okay? So in our case, this is a huge reason why we do this. This is a huge lesson because I don't want to owe somebody 300-some training sessions that they're never going to use, right? Or that they're going to try and spread out over the next 10 or 15 years. Okay, now come back to the middle here. Why do we do it monthly? I think there's a couple benefits to having people 
have their sessions expire at the end of every month. First and foremost, it gets people in regularly. Now I know this sounds simple, but if somebody has 104 sessions, a lot of times there's this thought in the back of your mind, like, oh, yeah, I don't have to go to the gym this week, or I don't have to go to this the gym this month, or, oh man, I'm really busy in the summer. I'll like really use a bunch of these at the end, okay? So I don't want that. I don't want people constantly kicking this down the curb. Because ultimately, at the end, if they don't use the sessions, they want to have access to them, right? It's kind of like the old rollover minutes with cell phones. Hey, well, I didn't use these minutes, but I paid for them, so I want them, okay? So we let it know very clearly up front, look, you have to come in regularly to make this valuable, right? Your sessions don't roll over. If you're going to be gone for a month, great. Pause your contract. Pause your membership. I'm okay with that. But when you're getting billed, you have 30 days to use these sessions. It gets them in regularly. And look, everyone wins when they train regularly, right? First and foremost, the client. You're not going to see results if you don't come in the gym. Pretty basic, but it's true. So the client wins. The coach wins. The way we pay our coaches, the more clients you have in, the more sessions you're doing, the more money you make. So the coach should want to see the client in regularly. If they're signed up for three times a week, boom, I want you in three times a week because I make more money and you get better results. And ultimately, three, the gym wins because we have more money, which allows us to you know, pay our staff more. It allows us to pay our rent. It allows us to buy better equipment and make the gym a better experience. So we set it up to where our sessions expand, ex- expire at the end of the month. We found it works the best. It makes billing easier. It makes keeping track of clients easier. And ultimately, it makes sure your clients are locked in and they're getting the most out of their membership at your gym. Okay, so great question, Dan. I hope that helps. Okay, number three. Man, this was a hard one. This was a really, really hard one. So Corey wanted to know, what is my proudest coaching moment? And man, first off, Corey, there's no way I can answer this with just one. Like 22 years in, not a chance that I can come up with just one coaching moment. Now, with that being said, I got maybe eight to 10 here that really stand out. And I'm sorry, I couldn't whittle it down anymore because this really made me reflect on like just getting into coaching. So a couple things that really stood out. I mean, I didn't even have this one on my list, but in 2001, I was a volunteer strength coach at Ball State. And my entire first year, well, for the the two years I was there, I was a graduate assistant in the research lab. So I basically lived that double life, right? It's like I'm in the, the research lab and we're doing force plates and EMG and all that stuff. But as soon as my responsibilities there are done, I'm in the gym because I love it. So in 2001, I'm a volunteer, but big things started happening for me because I kept showing up, right? Uninvited maybe unwillingly, but I kept showing up because I loved it. And I got women's volleyball as my first team. So that was pretty cool. And over that year, eventually I started getting more and more. It started with women's volleyball. Then I got men's volleyball. Then I got women's soccer. So I went from a person that is literally just there on a volunteer basis, not a graduate assistant, not like a paid coach in any way, shape or form, but I had three of my own teams that I was personally responsible for. So that was pretty cool. Second, when I was in the powerlifting game in 2003, 
one of my first really big coaching experiences was coaching a guy named Steve Kuamanis at Collegiate Nationals. Now, the way this platform or the way this meet was ran, there were two platforms. So uh, on one platform, Steve was lifting in his flight. I think he was a 220 at the time. And on the other flight, we had Matt winning. So, you know, I'm on one platform. The other coach, Justin Cecil, is on another platform. And like literally at the same time, we're coaching these guys. And it's like high stakes. Literally, like, are you picking the right weights? Uh, Are these guys making their lifts? What are the other people doing? Where are they at? Well, I take no credit for Steve's lifting that day because Steve was a savage. I think he went nine for nine continued to put pressure on these people. Nobody really had him on the radar. And Steve won Collegiate Nationals in 2003. So that was a huge moment. Uh, In 2004, I got nominated or just basically asked to coach at Bench Worlds for Team USA in in Cleveland, Ohio. So that was a huge moment and just eye-opening as far as how strong these people are, right? I mean, when you've got 181-pound dudes that are opening with 500 12 pound bench presses. That was pretty cool. So, you know, going back to bench worlds, um, you know, it's not necessarily a coaching moment, but opening iFast in 2008, huge moment for me as a coach. And I remember way back in like 1998, (laughs) this makes me feel really old, but back in 1998, when Jess and I first started dating and, you know, we're having this discussion and I'm like, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to, you know, somehow be in fitness and I'm going to own my own gym. So for that to come to fruition in 2008 was a huge moment. Uh, Getting my girl K-Dog, Catherine Volker, ready to play collegiate soccer. This was one of my favorite clients of all time. She wasn't a professional uh, soccer player, but she got me started in the soccer world, made me love the game of soccer because I had just so much affection for her, just such an amazing human being. And so getting her ready uh, to play collegiate soccer was a huge moment for me. Training Roy Hibbert, obviously I was a lifelong Pacers fan, so the opportunity to work with him and some of the experiences that led to, right? Because I had Roy for, I think, 10, 12 weeks that offseason, and I feel like we got him in great shape. He was an all-star that year. He was an all-defensive uh, all player year that year. Uh, not defensive player of the year, but he was on the all defense first team, I believe that year. Like he just crushed it. And again, the experiences that evolved out of that, right? Like going to San Antonio and now I get to meet Tim Duncan, somebody that I looked up to and watched for my entire basketball career, Uh, meeting Greg Popovich, having a 20 minute conversation with him about basketball and about bigs and developing big men. Like that was surreal to think back on that now. Uh, you know, working with Danny O'Rourke and and Danny, I didn't know anything about American soccer at the time. So when Danny reached out uh, to help work on his body and to start getting him feeling better, that opened so many doors for me. Because again, working with K-Dog, now I've got a little experience in soccer. Now I work with Danny. Danny led to Lori Lindsay, who played on the women's national team. Danny brought Chad Marshall, who was inarguably the best MOS defensive player in history, right? The only guy to win defensive player of the year three times, won supporter shields, uh, won MLS championships. And all that led to me working with the Indy 11 for the first five years uh, from their inception. So like that kind of stuff stands out. Most recently, this elite basketball program that Joey and I 
created. I mean, literally started from the bottom, like Drake said. Like, we started with nothing. Joey's hustling out of, like, elementary and middle school gyms. Um, I'm taking any basketball player that I can get that he's referring to me. We're not charging anybody to think about where we started at, thinking about six, seven years ago now, to where we're at now, where we've got legitimately high-level NBA, G League, Euro-level guys. Like, that's impressive. And then... I wanted to finish this off because sometimes I think people assume that, oh, well, you train pro athletes and like that's always the highlight. But I want you to understand, and this is this is just super important to me, like I am a coach and I've gotten really comfortable in my own skin with that over the years. So as amazing as those moments are, you know, you almost, I don't want to say become callous to them, but they become the norm after a while. And so that's why coming back and coming full circle and now working with some of these kids has been so cool and so special for me. So, you know, thinking back to to coaching some of Cade's baseball teams, you know, because I've coached Cade in basically every sport from pre-K, like four and five-year-olds up. I mean, teaching little boys how to throw or teaching them how to hit, like kids that cannot throw, like literally have no mechanics. They couldn't go out and, and throw a baseball or hit a volleyball, or hit a tennis ball, because they don't have those mechanics, teaching them those things. And then this last year, I know I've talked about this on the show before, but but coaching Kendall's soccer team, Team Taco, to the Fall 2021 Indy Premier Rec Plus Championship. Now, nobody's going to remember that, right? Like maybe the parents do, maybe the girls dust those trophies off in 15, 20 years when they're older, but to me, that was such an amazing experience because... Literally, that team consisted of all of the cast-offs from other teams, right? If you watch club sports enough, a lot of times these clubs have little cliques or teams that grow up within them, right? So there's these silos of, oh, this team has played together for five years, and this team's played together for six years. So when we moved into this division, we were all of the cast-offs, right? So for us to come together to watch these girls grow and develop and to see literally week over week how much better they got and how much their play improved was arguably one of the coolest experiences for me all time as a coach. So, Corey, I'm sorry, dude. That was probably like an eight-minute answer. <laughs> you were hoping for one coaching moment and you got like eight. But I hope that helps. Like the longer you do this, the the harder it is, I think, to peg down one moment. You know, maybe if I was in the NBA and I won a championship or something like that, like that would be it. But there's so many people, so many experiences over the years, it's hard to nail down just one. Okay, next. Uh, And again, I'm sorry, I don't have this gentleman's name on here, but basically the question was, hey, I see you're doing a lot of stuff with that Exerfly flywheel. What are some of your KPIs there? And I think before I answer the KPIs, I want to explain why I got interested in flywheel training in the first place, or why did I see a need for it? And I think one of the things that I've recognized over the years is that we put an overemphasis on heavy strength training. And I did this myself, right? Don't don't let me throw stones from my glass house here, okay? I made the mistake of trying to push athletes too hard, too heavy in the gym, and not seeing the carryover that I wanted. So I think there's been this progressive evolution for me to where, are we going to do some high force training? Absolutely. But also recognizing that if I want to get somebody ready 
for competitive sport and the speeds and the forces involved in competitive sport, there has to be this element of speed in the training. So I've been trying to fill in that gap with the work, especially of Lee Taft in my R4 and the reactive component. But it wasn't until I talked to Chris Chase on my podcast, I think it was probably two years ago now, where we really dove into this topic uh, and why flywheel training really fits the bill here because you get this magnification of eccentric forces. It's a very speed-driven output. So my issue was always, hey, if I'm squatting, even if I'm using accommodating resistance and I've got bands or chains or something like that, like that's cool, but it's still not quite the speed that I would like for it to be. So if I want to do that, I needed something to kind of bridge that gap. I can do the fast explosive stuff like sprints and throws and jumps. I can do some of the heavier or speed-focused weight room stuff, but I still felt like there was something in between. I felt like that's where the flywheel would fit in. And I've been very, very happy, at least subjectively, with what I've seen with it in just a short period of time. Now, the question is about KPIs. And unfortunately, I don't have some of the tools that I would like to have yet to be as objective about the outputs that I'm seeing as I'd like. So, You know, if someone is listening to this and wants to throw me like 5K to get going on these force plates that I want, let me know. Love to make that happen. But what I'd like to be able to do once I have force plates or I have some of these other toys and gadgets that I'd like to have are starting to look at number one, asymmetries between sides, because a lot of the athletes that I work with have had a surgical history or they've had some sort of injury that is required extensive rehabilitation. So I'd love to look at asymmetries between sides. What I'd really like to look at um, are concentric and eccentric rates of force development. And everything that I'm seeing, again, I'm a neophyte coming back to all this stuff, even though I have a master's of science in biomechanics, you know, I've kind of walked away from that world and I'm coming back into it now. But I would love to look at concentric and eccentric RFDs and then start to take these objective numbers and run them back with my visual assessments. So there's definitely more to come on this front. Uh, Again, I wish I had more objectivity to give you like, hey, this is exactly what I'm seeing in the changes, and this is like this case study where this person's eccentric RFD was trash, and now it's amazing. I'd love to do that. I don't have it yet, but there's more to come, my friend. Like, this is kind of the vision for me going forward. So I can tell you subjectively, the results I've seen have been really, really good. And, you know, a lot of these guys that I work with, when I send them off to Summer League and they get screenings, a lot of times they're coming back with much cleaner reports back to me than when they left. So that makes me feel good. It makes me feel like we're on the right track, but I would love to be more objective about it myself and be able to come up with more of those numbers on my own. So fantastic question and something I'm definitely working to get better at. Okay, next, Evan from The Complete Coach would like to know kind of my rationale or my thought process between loading-based split squat variations and propulsive-based split squat variations. So I'm using more of my own terminology here. Um, You know, if you're familiar with Bill's model, he'll talk, talk about early propulsion, middle propulsion, late propulsion. So a lot of times I think of early propulsive or more heel-focused activities as loading-based activities. 
And on the flip side, your late propulsive or your middle to late propulsive activities are more propulsive split squat variations. And look, there's a lot of ways to do this, but I think the first thing you need to ask yourself is, what does this person need? What do they need? If you have somebody that's just getting jammed forward, right? Everything on the backside is locked down. They're on their tippy toes. You probably need activities that shift their center of gravity back. On the flip side of that, if you've got this very low force producing athlete, they're kind of always back on their heels. Coaches would describe them as heavy footed, slow, uh, credit card vertical jump. If you're hearing things like that, you're probably going to need to find more propulsive based activities. So one of the things I talk about in the complete coach cert that I talk about in my complete coach seminars is trying to figure out which modifiers you have at your disposal and then trying to create activities that will give you the desired outcome. So let me give you an example. If somebody is jammed forward, right, and they need to shift their center of gravity back, there are a lot of ways you can do this you can put a kettlebell in a goblet position. That's gonna shift their center of gravity back. You can put their front foot on a box, right? So if you're doing a split squat, put the front heel or front foot on a box to shift their center of gravity back. Now on the flip side of that, if you have somebody that is, again, a low force producer or they're slow, you're probably gonna to wanna to do more force producing activities or you're gonna to wanna to chase more propulsive base activities. So this could be your rear foot elevated split squat. This could be where you're holding dumbbells in both hands, doing a rear foot elevated split squat to really try and get some compression on the backside to try and push them forward to develop some force and some output. Okay. So I think the first question you have to ask yourself is what does this person need both now and in the future? What do they need and then how can you create or how can you modify activities to get the desired result? So that's how I choose, you know, who's going to get a loaded variation or a split squat or excuse me, a loaded versus a propulsive split squat. And then from there, a couple of ways you can modify those activities to get more out of them. So really hope that helps. Uh, and shameless plug, it looks like there is going to be a complete coach seminar uh, in the Northeast in November. So if this is something you're interested in, definitely be on the lookout for a formal announcement on that soon. Okay, last but not least, my guy Corey came in with another doozy of a question, and this is our last one, so we'll wrap it up. Corey wants to know, what are my current goals for my business and my coaching? Damn, I mean, Corey is really killing me with these, but philosophy first because that's kind of just the jive, the jive and the mojo that we're putting off today. When we talk about our goals, I think what's more important to start with first is like what kind of lifestyle do we want to live, right? And I'm not one of these people that needs like a super opulent lifestyle, but there are certain things that are really important to me, right? Um, I want to have some sort of coaching uh, in my life as often as possible. Um, I want to have time to create content, whether it's a podcast like this, uh, a written newsletter, an article, uh, a video, and most importantly, at the end of the day, I want to have time dedicated to my family. A uh, little inside baseball here, like one of my fondest memories growing up is that 
my dad was an absolute rock star as far as taking me to stuff. Like, he took me to every practice. Uh, when I was growing up, he knew I loved basketball. He would drive me not to not just to every uh, game that was at home. He would drive me to every away game that the high school team played. And some of these games were 45 minutes to an hour one way. I mean, this dude just showed up consistently. And so that's something I always want to give back to my children. I always want to be there for them. So like one of the consistent themes I have in my life is trying to use leverage to create time. A lot of times people talk about money and I think money is fine and you have to have enough money to survive. But for me, time is way more valuable to me than just making more money. Okay. So with that being said, some goals for IFAST. Number one, uh, I've realized I cannot do all of the things myself. Um, and quite frankly, I don't want to do all of the things myself anymore. It's exhausting, and I've got great people around me that are ready to step in and take that mantle. So uh, one of the things that I'm looking to do is hire an integrator. Or in, If you're familiar with the book Traction or the EOS model, I want to hire an integrator or like a facility manager. Somebody to just take over a lot of the roles and responsibilities that when things get busy for me, tend to fall by the wayside. So I need somebody there, somebody to help drive the bus because I've got some really cool visions and I got some really cool ideas of what that gym can be, um, especially now. Like, not that it hasn't been cool the last 14 years, but like, how can we really take this to the next level in the next five years? So I need to hire somebody to do that. Just kind of rebuilding. Um, you know, being frank, and I, I feel like maybe I've talked about this on the show in the past, but the last two years were hard. I mean, 2020, if you owned a gym, I mean, it really sucked. Like, there were very few positives to come out of that. And I will d- go to my grave saying that if you have made it through the last two years as a gym owner and you're still here running, owning, and operating a gym, like, kudos to you. You're doing something right, and I'm happy for you. So there is kind of this rebuild in effect of like, okay, this is where we were. This is who we were. What's our next step? What's our next big evolution? So I'm excited for that. And again, that's where I need somebody to help me out with that. But I'm excited to, to continue to rebuild. And then thirdly, this greater emphasis on just the objectivity in training. I can really see us being a bridge, especially with like high school athletes, from the end of physical therapy to getting back into true return to performance. Because we just get so many kids, they're coming off an ankle sprain or an ACL or a labrum. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the injury. Like, they're not 100%. And we can talk till we're blue in the face and show the parents pictures and videos and do you see this on their movement? And Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But having some objectivity in that process to show them very clearly, like, hey, look, Uh, this right side is 20% deficient to the left. You know, being able to be that level of objective when you're assessing or evaluating a client or an athlete, I think is really valuable. So those are my goals for IFAST. RTS, I've talked about it for like a year now. The superset webinar is done. uh, So I'm excited to have that done and out the door. And it was mostly just back-end hoops and jumps that I had to go through, but I got that done. Uh, I'm excited to continue to build the podcast. Like this is, I just talked to Pat about this yesterday. When it comes to this, I would have told you a year and a half, maybe two years in that I was done. Like if I made it to a hundred episodes, great. 
No way would I have thought 200. And here we are, I don't even know now, 340-ish, 340 episodes later. I still enjoy it. I'm still continuing to find great people. Or if I'm not finding new people, I'm going back to people that we've had on in the past, like a Lee Taft, a Joel Jameson, a Bill Hartman, Adam Lawakano, Big House. Those people continue to evolve. And they continue to gain experience. And they continue to gain wisdom and get better and better. So I'm excited to continue to build this and continue to see it evolve. And then the final piece for RTS is content creation. Like, I would love to create and craft enough time in my schedule to where I can get back to writing more articles. Like, I know it it seems kind of archaic at this point in time, and it's hard to get that much attention from somebody, but man, I love to write. It helps me streamline my thoughts, and I think there is a demographic out there that appreciates a really well-thought-out and well-written article. So I would love to do more of that in the future. And then just in general, man, like I want to continue to get better as a coach. 22 years in, I feel like every day I'm out there, I learn something, I see something a little bit better or a little bit differently. So I just love the Kaizen principle there, trying to get 1% better every day. Uh, Talked about this a couple times now, but getting back into more sports science stuff, um, trying to figure out ways to integrate sports science into all of the great movement training that we're doing at the gym, I think is going to be valuable. And then I've kind of got this like resurgence of interest in knees. Um, and and luckily, knock on wood, like I'm feeling great. But I've had a lot of, of guys and gals here lately that have dealt with knee stuff. Uh, and so it's something to continue to to dive into and improve on and learn more about. So we've had some really good results, like really, really good turnarounds with some of our athletes this offseason. I'm thrilled with where they're at. But now it's just kind of like wet the appetite and I want to keep getting better and I, I want to keep learning more. So Corey, man, I don't know. I think your questions took about half of this episode, but hopefully everybody that's listening in found some value in them. So that is it for today's episode. I know it was long. Hopefully it wasn't too long winded. I didn't feel like I was rambling too much, but at the end of the day, I hope it provided value for you. Like that's why I do this, whether it's my Q&A episodes, my solo episodes, the interview shows that I do. The Physical Prep Podcast is all about creating value and helping you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. So really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, do me a small favor. Share this episode somewhere with somebody. You can put it on social media. If you put it in the story, tag me at Rob Train Systems. But share it with another trainer, coach, rehab professional, athlete, Anybody that you think would find value in it, because as always, I'm just trying to keep getting the word out there and I want to make our industry the best it can possibly be. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.